Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Welcome to Season 2 of The Next Great Podcast. iHeartRadio and Tongle have once again teamed up to bring you another round of amazing and unique voices. We're excited to share these 10 incredible podcasts with you and need your help crowning the winner. Check out the pilots and be sure to vote for your favorite at nextgreatpodcast.com. Today's entry is The Push Podcast, Wheelchair Basketball in the USA by Derek Hoot. We love this podcast for the way it centers the voices of athletes with disabilities, using sports journalism as a vehicle for larger conversations about whose stories matter. As a competitive wheelchair basketball player himself, Derek's personal connection to the game makes him a dynamic host who understands what it takes to rise to the top of the sport. I'm Derek Hoot from Madison, Wisconsin, and you're listening to the pilot episode of Push Podcast, Wheelchair Basketball in the United States, as part of the Next Great Podcast 2021 competition from iHeartRadio and Tongle. If you enjoy this episode, please vote for me at nextgreatpodcast.com. First turnover of the game on that 24-second violation. Here you see the, the little chess match that is wheelchair basketball and how hard it is to play defense. Great spinning move. Because this is a special edition episode, and one that I hope a lot of people outside the wheelchair basketball community are listening to, I do want to give some history for the kids at home. So let's talk wheelchair hoops. Wheelchair basketball started in 1945, and like most things in the United States that started in 1945, it started because of World War II. And wheelchair basketball was developed originally as a form of rehabilitation for returning veterans who either had spinal cord injuries or limb loss or other disabilities from the war. And this group benefited a lot from participating in sports, especially organized team sports, as a way to integrate back into post-war American society. And this wasn't even a uniquely American thing. In Britain, Dr. Ludwig Gutmann was a neurologist who established the National Spinal Injuries Center 
at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. And this was a hospital that treated like Royal Air Force vets who crashed their bombers while fighting the Nazis and broke their backs, like intense stuff. And I could do an entire episode on Dr. Gutman and his heroism and his contributions to our understanding of disability. But the most important thing he did for the Paralympic movement was he established an international competition, the Stoke Mandeville Games, that featured wheelchair basketball in 1956. And then it was kind of off to the races. Four years later, the first Paralympics were held in Rome, right after the Paralympics themselves. Now, as the Paralympic movement was developing, the National Wheelchair Basketball Association, or NWBA, was growing in the United States, founded by Tim Nugent at the University of Illinois in 1949. Since then, the NWBA has grown from a handful of college teams to hundreds of youth, college, and adult teams across the country. It's helped players with disabilities gain confidence, go to college, find jobs, and even represent their countries in international competition. And so it's a game with deep history and goals that go beyond sports. But it's also changed a lot over the years to become faster, more competitive, and more exposed than ever before with social media and the advent of streaming sports and the movement for inclusion in the world of sports. We've really gone a long way from heavy folding hospital chairs from these rehab hospitals that pioneered the sport to custom engineered $3,000 wheelchair frames and players who are, you know, hiring personal trainers and nutritionists, seeking sponsorships, playing in European leagues. There's just a level of professionalism now that I think is unprecedented and that's really cool to see. And that brings me to my guest, who is really the embodiment of professionalism in this sport one of the first American pro players I ever knew of when I was growing up around the sport. He's a five-time Paralympian, three-time medalist, and two-time gold medalist in wheelchair basketball for Team USA. After graduating from University of Wisconsin-Whitewater with a degree in sociology, he played professionally in Turkey, Italy, Germany, and Spain, and he's just coming off a gold medal win in Tokyo. Matt Scott, welcome to the pod. Man, that's, uh, that's a, it's a beautiful introduction. And every time they say two-time gold medalist, I get a little, I get a little shiver, man, because that is not a, that's not something easy to come by. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to, uh, to have accomplished that. Well, I think, I mean, not only like the back to back nature of it, but I think this games and just the lead up and the doubt of like, is it going to even happen? And the, the thoughts that you probably had after the delay of the games and you had even a special situation and we'll go into that. A little later, just just medically, a really scary moment where it was like probably questioning, am I going to be able to play this game again, let alone at a at a Paralympic level again? But I do I do kind of want to start in the the very beginning. You were born with with spina bifida and it's a congenital birth defect. It affects your spine and left you without the ability to walk. But growing up in, in the Detroit area, you say you played a lot of sports beside your able-bodied peers. How did that kind of influence your competitive drive and how were you ultimately introduced to the sport of wheelchair basketball? So that, that was tremendous to my, uh, to my competitive drive. Just being able to compete with the, the kids around me and them not looking down on me or, or treating me specially because I was in a wheelchair, uh, that, that did wonders to me. Um, I, you know, I, I would step on a basketball court, roll out to a basketball court, and they were, you know, if I was selected on the team, you know, whether, you know, hey, I want little John, I want, you know, Matt, I want, you know, Chris, um, as they're selected teams, I'm expected to hold my own. And when I wasn't, when I didn't, you know, they would hold me accountable. You know, I missed a shot. They would talk trash to me. 
Um, you know, if I if you know if I was playing bad defense, they would run around me. Um, that that really, I think, was such an advantage when I started playing wheelchair basketball, just because I when I when I first was introduced to it, I thought like, man, you know, I've been playing with these with these able-bodied guys. I, I think I can handle this. But it's not it's not like that. It's not like that at all. You don't you know, you don't step onto the streetball court with your with your friends and then get on a wheelchair basketball floor and think you're just going to dominate. Um, wheelchair basketball has some incredible players. They have some incredible talent um, and the athleticism in it is is just next level. I think it's something that you absolutely have to see. Um, so when I when I transitioned from playing streetball with my friends to playing wheelchair basketball, I knew how to play the game. I, I, I was pretty good at basketball, but I really had to learn the ins and outs of how to um, how to manipulate the game. It's just it's it's a little bit of a different game. And so you have to be more creative with space because you can't just run through a guy like you watch LeBron run through a guy in able-bodied basketball. It's it's more of a chess match. And so I think it, it challenges you a bit more mentally. But who else was on that juniors team in Michigan? Ooh, man. What, that, what were you that, guys called at the time? So we were the Sterling Heights Challengers. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember be, watching my first practice um, and guys like Mikey Pay, Jason Nelms, Matt Bushy, Denny Muha. Um, those those are names that that everybody in wheelchair basketball knows. Um, those are, you know, the, all those guys went through a collegiate program. All those guys played really high level um, you know, national team caliber, um, national champions, uh, you know, just just really good nationally, um, well-known talent. But they were just in their uh, in their humble beginnings back then as well. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of those players ended up going to college programs Two of the players you named Mikey Pay and Jay Nelms went to UTA and right. other two of the players that you named Matt Bushy and Danny Muha went to Illinois. What drove you to go to the University of Wisconsin Whitewater and be kind of the the I don't want to say outcast, but the the odd one out in those <laughs> college decisions? That's for sure. That I mean, it, it is the it is the odd one out. Uh, so it's interesting enough, um, and, that, and this is a, this is a great question because I would say I was really close to going to the University of Texas Arlington. My junior year, I was wearing like UTA t shirts. Like <laughs> I was wearing in like to, to tournaments and like people. People thought like, yeah, okay, he's going to UTA. You know, Mikey Pay is one of my best friends in the entire world. We've been friends for you know almost two decades now, and um, I was I wanted to play with him. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to go there. It was a full ride scholarship. I thought that's where I was gonna go. Um, but my, when I turned when I got to my junior year of high school, uh, I made that that under twenty three team, the under twenty three team that went to Brazil in two thousand and one. Man, that was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, 2001 went to Brazil, and the coach of that team was Tracy Tracy Chenoweth, and okay. that that was the current coach of uh, University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Um, Whitewater wasn't really on my radar. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, it's a small small town. It's a small school, but with a lot of heart. Um, mm-hmm. I quickly got to know co- uh, Tracy's uh, coaching style. I got to know some of the players that were on that team and they were really close knit. Like I just, I just loved it. Um, and they weren't guys that were like uh, quote unquote, like blue chippers. They were guys that like went after it and like hard workers. And, and I think that's what I wanted. I felt like I had the talent coming out of, out of uh, juniors, 
I felt like people knew that I could play the game, but I wanted to learn how to play at a, at a ne- at the next level. I didn't want to just say, take my talent and then just coast on to be, I don't know, as good as I might naturally be. I wanted to hammer myself out and to be one of, one of the best players I possibly could. Yeah. I mean, looking back at those five years, you won championships three out of those five years. Right. And, yep. and it was just kind of a different style of basketball that those Warhawk years were. It was really cool to watch coming up as like a camper and stuff. Right now, Team USA is kind of at the top of the mountain after back-to-back golds, Rio and Tokyo, but it wasn't always that way. There was kind of this, this metal drought. And in your, your BBC interview that you give, you describe an experience in 2004 just laying on the floor crying after losing to Great Britain in a quarterfinals game because you knew how much better Team USA could do. How did that change your mindset going into Beijing and beyond? So that quarterfinal game was so crazy because we had fought as hard as we possibly could and we could and we we got to the number one seed in that pool. So yes. getting number one seed in the pool was 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 amazing to us because it means that like you know maybe maybe our road to to metal you know the metal rounds wouldn't be as difficult. Well, mm-hmm. then we got then we got matched up with GB, who we who we had played I think seven or eight times that that whole summer. So we felt good going into it because you know we 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 had seen them. You know we we knew that they were good, but we had seen them before. Oh man, that the game the way that game went was just was just crazy. It, it, it came down to like a intentional foul, some free throw shots mm-hmm. at the end. We ended up losing the game by three points. Um, and those those kind of games, it feels like somebody ripped your heart out because you don't have control over where you go from there. So you lose in the quarterfinal, you automatically get bumped down to no, no medal contention, seventh or eighth place or whatever. Um, Yeah. That was a, that was a gut wrenching experience. I'm only 18 thinking that it's the end of the world at that point, you know, and I'm really really sad and just, just bummed feeling like I let my team down and um, you know, you're young, you, 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 you feel like you're, you get, you get to the, the Paralympics and you need to, represent to the best of your ability we're team usa we have to we have to win gold um it's that mindset but that that wasn't realistic we were a young team um we were led by you know some of the some of the younger guys in the in the you know in the world at the at that time i was 18 you know mikey pay was really young jay nelms was really young uh we had a long way to go we had a long way to go but we really wanted it right now we wanted to we wanted to win now so mm-hmm. Our, you asked how did it change my mentality going into 2008? I knew I knew what the best team looked like after yeah. after going to after losing in 2004. You know, seeing how Canada was, seeing how Australia was, seeing how GB was, I knew what the best team looked looked like. I knew what the best players looked like, and I knew exactly how hard I needed to work in order to be at that level. When we came back in 2008, I'm convinced. I'm convinced we had the best team in the world. We just underachieved. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. <laughs> I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Like you said, it feels like the end of the world, but that whole time you're, you're scouting, you know, you're learning from the vets and you're learning from the, the best players in the world. And you get to see how they execute and how they, they make those achievements happen. So it's, it's not the end of the world. It's the, it's the beginning of like you getting better and your team getting better and the, the program getting better. So 2008 was your second Paralympics, and in Beijing, Team USA went further than in Athens. They weren't knocked out until the, the semifinal round by a strong Canadian team. And then they had another close game with GB in the bronze medal game, which is which is tough. But would you say at that point, GB was like the rival you guys were trying to figure out, or what was that relationship kind of turning to be, on, to be honest, so... As I, as I said earlier in the in the conversation, I wholeheartedly believe that Team USA had the best team in the world in 2008. We just underachieved. Uh, I think that blow of losing that triple overtime game against Canada in the semifinal with this mentality going into Beijing that anything less than gold was a disappointment, that really mentally 
damaged our our ability to um to go out in that bronze medal game and, and have any fight. Um, yeah. I think that we didn't approach that bronze medal game with we didn't we didn't treat it with with the with the care and the respect of an athlete that that could potentially bring home some hardware because that that triple overtime game was such a heartbreaker. Um yeah. it was you know that that that's definitely to this day is probably one of the most heartbreaking games I've ever played. You know, we went up huge against Canada to start the game. It was like, it was a, like a great like, Canada team too. I mean it was a great, yeah, exactly. Uh, and they just, you know, they just kept, you know, kept fighting back, kept fighting back. Uh, we, you know, we got bit by the free throw monster. Who, you know, mm-hmm. we, we couldn't close it out. We had three guys file out of that game, including myself. You know, Paulie filed out. Joe Chambers filed out. I also filed out. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just such a, you know, they, such a disappointing game. Yeah. And I think in having to turn around and play the very next day, uh, against a team that really was pumped, you know, pumped to come another out. Another good team, yeah. Another good team, and they're they're happy to go home bronze medalist, whereas we're just like tail yeah. between our legs and not really happy about it. That was uh, that was an interesting way to to end Beijing. Having you know, we're going to fast forward. Obviously, you're probably going to talk about London a little bit. I was going to say, spoiler alert: it makes you appreciate a bronze medal more. Exactly, right? it changed um, everything. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, after eight years on Team USA, you you brought home your first medal, your bronze. You left for Italy. You played with a team called Porto Torres. And some of your game film, especially of you making threes, went viral. And there was a write-up from the blog Undefeated. They published a write-up in 2016 called Meet the Steph Curry of Wheelchair Basketball. And Whistle Sports posted your highlight video. And so it started to, to kind of get some, some following on social media. How important was that write-up and that viral video to you? Those, um, I, remember, I remember very, very vividly going through those times. Um, mm-hmm. I remember going through those times because um, I, I just left Turkey where I, I struggled a lot offensively. And, I, you know, I played for a coach at the time that really let me know it. Like, he just really let me know it. He was really hard on me. And I was, um, I was like determined. It's almost like when, like, I don't know, like you break up with a significant other and you're like, I'm going to go be the, you know, I'm going to go live <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, you know, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to show this guy that, you know, not only, you know, can I shoot the rock, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best shooter. You know, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to kill it. I didn't, I didn't go set out to, to be, you know, the Steph Curry wheelchair basketball, or I didn't never consider myself to be that. However, uh, in that, that, those, those two years in Italy, um, I went off that particular viral game that, that you're, that you're talking about. Um, I think I hit like eight or nine threes, um, though, all in the second half, um, that, that was cool because of the environment, um, that, that we put, that we were playing in because we were playing Cantu, which is, you know, one of the best teams in Italy. They also just happened to play in front of like one of the biggest crowds in, in Europe, like they, they attract a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. So the environment was great. And also it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was televised and it was, you know, all, you know, it was great cameras and all that. So when those clips got um, put out on the internet, not only was a high quality, you know, it was against a really good team. So, you know, the, the uh, competitiveness is up there. You can see it, it going and, the um you can see like the crowd like it was just you it was can just hear great. the crowd 
Yeah, every, yeah. Every, everything was, um, I mean, everything was, just fell in the line, you know. When those, when those clips hit the internet, people were just going crazy. I just remember just being tagged and having all these mentions. And everything. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I, I couldn't believe it. What is going on, you know, because I didn't even know who Whistle Sports was. Yeah. Um, they were reaching out to me like, hey, can we share this? And I'm like, yes, yes, you can. Please. We got like, you know, when they when they put that on Whistle Sports and they got a million views in under a few days, I was uh, I was blown away. No, it's it's awesome for the sport. And I think, like you said, you know, like you don't necessarily think of yourself as the Steph Curry of wheelchair basketball, but it's cool that you were able to fill in that super offensive role and work on something that like. Like you said, your coach had been nagging you about it back in back in Turkey, right? Right. So then you guys broke the broke the metal drought, but then you finally broke the gold drought. And in 2016, Team USA came home with the gold. They beat a really talented Turkish and Spanish team in the semis and in the gold medal match. What were some of your favorite moments from those games? And did you get a chance to reflect on all that hard work in that moment? Of course, man. It's it it's uh everything kind of hits you at once, you know, once the, once the siren goes off, I immediately charge Mikey pay, um, having, um, th- I mean, this, even now talking, talking about it right now is, you know, it gives me some really good, really good feelings, but, you know, having him being at my first wheelchair basketball practice and us coming such a long way, um, it was, you know, I immediately charged at him, gave him a huge hug. Um, it was a super emotional moment. You, you do get a chance to reflect on it. And it's really great when you get a chance to do it with a bunch of guys that you love and respect and that you know that you, um, you'd go to battle with at any, you know, any given day. You later were playing professionally in Germany for an awesome team, Turingen. And I, I got a chance to, to see you guys when I was playing out there. And that program is awesome. In November 2018, while you were playing professionally for them, you fell pretty seriously ill and eventually went into septic shock and multi-organ failure and just left you in a coma for a week and hospitalized in the ICU for four months. Coming off of that illness, did you think your basketball career was over and who or what helped you make that recovery and ultimately retain that goal you had of playing in the Tokyo Games? There were uh, there were definitely times where I doubted whether I was going to be able to come back or not. Um, it was it was it was scary to sort of be at you know this peak physical condition and you know you know basically playing at the top of your game and feeling as good as you possibly can, um, and then that just being gone in an instant. I had a lot of people that reached out to me. Um, I, I wheelchair basketball is such a great community because. You know, there's some people that I'd never even talked to, but they were affected by my career or motivated by things that I've done. And they've reached out and they, they let me know that. Like, hey, man, like you're you're important to this sport. You know, I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that your recovery goes well. And like people really uh, they really like crowd surfed me, man. It, it was it was <laughs> great. You know, it, it felt like the things that I'd been doing, the things that I had been trying to accomplish didn't go unnoticed. And people actually um felt like they identified with me, you know, and as, as a player, you're always kind of feeling that competition. You're always feeling like you're going, you know, it's you against the world kind of thing. But then you start to see that, like, you know, a lot, a lot of these people, you know, support me, you know, no matter what. And I thought that was great. I think crowd surf is a, is a great metaphor for it. And I think it really is 
like a tight knit global community. Cause there's so few people in the middle of that Venn diagram of people with disabilities and people who are like high on athletics, you know? And so it, that, that bubble gets, it's pretty small and it's, it, they all care about each other and, and we all want to see each other do well. So I think crowd surfing is the perfect metaphor there. And obviously, you know, leading up to the games, there were setbacks that every athlete faced leading up to Tokyo because they were delayed a full year until summer 2021 due to COVID-19. Did you have to make a huge shift in your mindset when you heard about that delay or after that health scare, was there kind of a positive aspect to it where it's like, I have more time to train? I think I, <laughs> there was a, I went through every emotion, if I'm being yeah. honest. Yeah. So I think I started off in this, like, in this, this high, like I was, I was pumped still because I'm like, well, first of all, it hasn't been canceled. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been canceled. They use the word postponed, which means there's a chance. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm high on optimism. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's awesome. It's just going to get pushed back a few months. I was also living in Turingi at the time, and uh, you've seen that gym. It's awesome. It's like a wheelchair basketball gym. Yeah, it's a good place but to be stuck in if you're. Training. It was. I was like quarantined in a basketball court uh, with one of my best friends in the world. You know, right. so me and him were just like we were going to the gym every day, and it wasn't open to the public anymore. So it was just our gym, and like you know, we were working on our game. Um, I mean, I was I was in pretty good shape. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, you know, a couple more months are going to go by and then COVID is going to be over. Right. And then, right. <laughs> then, then, then I kind of hit a wall, you know, yeah. then it's like, oh man, you know, you start, you, you, you don't really see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel and you start doubting, you start, mm-hmm. people start talking about like, oh, they're going to cancel it. They're going to get, you know, you try to tune them out, but you can't quite. Huh. Um, so in the middle, I think I, I was, I was starting to get a bit down. Mm-hmm. Then you then, you know, I started, you know, really kind of leaning on my teammates a bit. Hey, what are you doing? How are you training? Okay. You know, motivating ourselves, motivating, our, motivating ourselves by, by ourselves. And that's when I really started to be like, okay, whether Tokyo happens or not, I'm going to be ready and yep. I'm going to be ready because of these guys. These guys got me ready and I'm going to do it. And the Paralympic Games in Tokyo, it ended up being pretty dramatic for the USA men in the first yeah. round. You edged out Germany by three points. And that was a heavily contested game where, where Tommy Bowman shot really well from three-point land. And, and USA was aided by Brian Bell's offensive run in the fourth quarter. Later, USA lost by one point to their rival, Great Britain, in pool play. And after routing Australia and Algeria, you had another close game against Turkey in the playoffs. After this third close game, Captain Steve Serio gave a pretty passionate post-game speech what did Steve say to get the team fired up after that turkey game? I mean, t- Steve, <laughs> he's a, he's a good leader, man. I mean, it's not about what he said; it's yeah. about it's about how he said it. It's with the intent that he said it with, and not it wasn't it wasn't frustration. It was intensity. It was yeah. belief. It was belief in the guys around him. So I, I think I think he said the f word about three times on national TV, which is pretty. Oh funny. no, I wasn't asking verbatim. <laughs> Now we 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 joked we joked about that in uh we joked about yeah. that in our, and we had a celebration in Vegas right after Tokyo and he was like yep yeah, I'm pretty sure I said the f word about three times on national TV <laughs> um, now but I mean it was just it was just that passion and intensity that he led us with and you know he, that was that was something that was throughout throughout the entire run in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so you ended up after that game winning the semifinal against Spain decisively. And that set up a gold medal match against the home team, Team Japan, who had just upset Great Britain in their semifinal. What was it like playing against the the host nation? And how did you guys prepare to face what was at one point a pretty unexpected opponent in the gold medal game? So I think the way we approached every game was just to play Team USA basketball. We have this. We have the same game plan for pretty much. I won't say the same game plan. We have obviously it all. It's altered based on their personnel. But we have to. We have the same objectives. We have the same things that we want to reach. We have. We have our gold medal standards um, in order to win each game. So we didn't approach the game any differently than we would. Um, it's just that uh, they're the home team. There's a they. We they have the under underdog effect. Everybody in the gym, I mean, every single person in that gym or even watching, I'm pretty sure was, uh, unless you were like a close family member or or whatever, people were pulling for Japan. That's just the way it yeah. goes. You know, yeah. people are, people are sick of, people are sick of you, of you winning, even if you only won one, one tournament before it was interesting. Uh, and they gave us a really good shot as well. Like yeah. you just mentioned hero was, um, he was a man. He, was on fire. He was, he, he played incredibly well. Um, he put, it was a confident team. And I think that they, uh, they played about as best as they possibly could. That just wasn't good enough to beat us. And that was your fifth Paralympics and your third medal and your second gold. What was special about this medal versus the others? I mean, you, a lot, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, um, that scare in 2018 and not, knowing whether I was going to be able to play wheelchair basketball or play at a, at a high level again, um, to be able to not only make it to the Paralympic stage, but also get to the, the top of the mountain and bring home the shiniest medal there is, especially with the team that we did it with, with that, you know, with that group of guys, um, that, that, that showed me a lot about the resilience that I have as, as a player, as a person, um, it tells me a lot about the team that I have that has my back. Um, that, that, that made it amazing. Um, I think, I think even just getting what we got through as a society, um, I think the, I think Tokyo going down was just a win for everyone. You know, that, that game, those games felt like a win and it was a, it was a big, uh, is a, I mean, like, for example, like guys like Mikey Pay and Josh Turek, um, they're, you know, they're, they're retiring. Um, I'm not really sure how many of the guys from the U S national team currently are going to return back to um, national team wheelchair basketball. Um, so that was a great way to kind of ride off into the sunset and that close a chapter on that team, because that is uh, that man, that is really special stuff right there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the push podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Matt Scott, five-time Paralympian, three-time medalist, and two-time gold medalist in wheelchair basketball for Team USA. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to vote for Push Podcast, Wheelchair Basketball in the United States at nextgreatpodcast.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, keep pushing. Hi, this is Sienna. And Liana. From Tossed Popcorn, last year's winner of the Next Great Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and be sure to go vote for your favorite at nextgreatpodcast.com.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.